Today is giving up on sadness. Our text is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The scripture says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, he says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. King James says, the sin that so easily besets us. It's a phrase we don't normally hear. And he says, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. King James says, with patience, endurance. It's the Greek word, hupomone. It means to abide under, to not quit, but to continue to carry the load and follow through. To endure the race that God has set before us. This morning I want to remind you that the race that we're in, beloved, is not a sprint. It's not something uh, where necessarily intensity is the winning characteristic. It's just perseverance. It's sometimes all you do is you feel like you're just barely plodding along. But if you're just moving inches, this thing is not a sprint. It is a marathon. Say that with me. This race is not a sprint. It is a marathon. We're not doing this for speed, but we're doing this for endurance, for hupomone. We want to follow through. We want to finish. The Bible says, He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And so we want to endure. We want to run our race. We want to cross the finish line. We, want to, we don't want to start and then stall out. We don't want to be like the tortoise and the hare and the hare that got a little arrogant and too self-confident and he pulled over and laid down under the tree and went to sleep. And the tortoise, the one that just continued to plod along before you know it, actually won the race because the hare thought for sure out of self-confidence that he could win the race. It's that one who continuously perseveres and never gives up sometimes wondering if there even is any progress going on. But when you don't quit, look at your neighbor and say, don't quit. Matter of fact, I tell you what, if anybody has anything to do with what gets put on my tombstone, I want these words, there was no quit in him. There was no quit in him. I'm, 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 I'm doing a five-year journal where there are five dates and there's about five lines for every date. And it's, it's today's date is like, what, December 15th, is that right? Well, I'll go home today, and I did it in 2016, 2017, 2018. This is 2019. And so every year I look back, and I see what I wrote on that day. And it's cool because I can see where my mind was and how I was thinking and well, how I've wrestled through the grief of losing my wife. And grief is a whole different special subset of sadness that I'm not really speaking to today. When I'm talking about giving up on sadness, I'm speaking generally of the thing that really creeps in on all of us during this time of year. Christmas, it slams folks. These, these days, these holidays, seem to really sometimes bring out the worst in terms of uh, eliciting uh, feelings of sadness, melancholy. I recognized as a teenager that I was a creative musician. And when you, when you look at that in its purest form, my daughter is much more so than I am. But I made a deliberate effort as a teenager seeking the Lord and in the Word and in, in church and as a young college student immersing myself in the Word to move out of a constantly melancholic state where 
I experienced high highs and low lows, and it's almost like a roller coaster. And I began to seek the Lord because I saw my personality as how I was, and I said, God, I, I, I don't want life as just a straight line. Stability, obviously, is something that we seek, and I do want to experience some highs and lows, but I don't want to be manic. I don't want to be highs way up here and lows way down here where lows cripple you and highs nearly drive everybody else crazy. How many know what I'm talking about? And so I saw myself as a mostly melancholic that is a creative person, artsy person, music and, 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 and writing and, and things of beauty and all of these kind of things that, that, that really, if, if, if you give yourself to it, it creates kind of an isolation. And, and so I, I began to push myself to be around others and to begin to find some sense of stability. And when I would see myself creeping into a place of sadness, I would begin to speak to that sadness. I would do the words we sang this morning. I would prophesy the promises of God. And I would talk about the joy of the Lord, Nehemiah 8.10, that is my strength, because sadness will weaken you. So this morning, as I talk to you about giving up on sadness, I'm speaking to you not just from the last three years of dealing with a very specific subset of sadness, that is grief, but just my whole life in terms of how I process things. Because the enemy knows. He knows, he knows how to push my buttons. He knows how to move in and begin to make me sense a feeling of inadequacy and not enough, not good enough, um, uh, awkwardness, um, rejection sometimes around others. And the more that gets magnified, the more it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I had to speak to those things. I had to prophesy the, just a sense of stability into my life. I remember reading Isaiah was about 33 where it says that the, the knowledge of the Lord, will, the wisdom of God will be the stability of my times. God, I thank you that you'll give me wisdom how to know myself, how to know my ups and my downs. And in the middle of all of that, God, I thank you that you're with me in those. And, and, and uh, say with me, I know I'm rambling just a little bit, but I'm trying to give you a little picture of who I am in terms of what this means to me as a message. I have one thing I want to say this morning that I'll say over and over. My one thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> read it out loud with me. Here we go. Take responsibility for what's under your control and trust God with everything else. Say it one more time. Take responsibility. Everybody, once more. Here we go. Take responsibility for what's under your control and trust God with everything else. My dad was remarkable at this. Not a very educated man, but he was a very smart man. How many of you know there's a difference? Far too often in our American educational system, we tend to group the two together and we, we tend to think that smart and education are the same thing. And I just want you to know there's some educated idiots out there. And there's some uneducated, very smart folks. My dad did not have the privilege of going to school. He was one of 12 children raised in a little, little family farm, 100 acres in Savannah, Tennessee, that they lost during the Depression, and they moved to Taranza, Arkansas, and they farmed as sharecroppers on the Norcross Plantation in Taranza. And um, Dad was born in 1914, and really until the, until the war, until World War II, he actually went through some training in the Army to get his GED. 
But as far as actually school time, he, he didn't do anything past third grade. But there was an amount of wisdom, there's a degree of wisdom in my dad's life that stunned me. Now, I didn't know that when I was about 16 or 17. And I was the typical Mark Twain fool who was shocked by the time I got to 25 and, and realized how much my dad had learned in those 10 years. It blew my mind. And that we, we got very close and I'm grateful for that. It changed my life. Um, but my dad would always try to tell us, he said, you know what, if, 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 if you can do something to change it, then get up off of your blessed assurance and work. Just take some action and change it. He said, if you can't do anything about it, then there's no reason to worry about it. And my mom would always fuss about that. She said, well, Grady, you know, I, and he would just say, Mary Agnes. It was Mary Agnes, but he'd say, Mary Agnes. It was all one word. Put now, Mary Agnes, I'm telling you, you got to trust. You got to believe. I, I remember the, I grew up in a home that had a lot of love, a lot of encouragement, a lot of constant believe, trust the Lord, work hard, never quit. Trust God, work hard, never quit. You've heard me say that. That was our family mantra. That was from my grandparents down. Trust God, work hard, never quit. And dad and mom never had a, never had a fight. And certainly there was never any violence. There was no striking anybody in my home. But I saw them have one argument that was a pretty good one. I mean, there, there could have been, it could have been described as some fireworks. Dewey and I were blown away because we were just like watching it, you know, back and forth. Because mom washed my dad's work pants and his wallet and his driver's license, which was paper at the time, it wasn't laminated like they have them now, and his social security card and his cash and all this stuff was in his wallet and mom washed the pants and it was just in pieces. And he was, why didn't you take it out? She said, well, why didn't you empty your own pockets? And they're just back and forth, back and forth. And Dewey and I were just having a blast watching it because we'd never seen him have an argument before. They managed to do all that privately. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> always maintained kind of a unified front, but they were having a good argument, and we enjoyed it. And, and one of the things, <laughs> one of the things that occasionally, it never did reach that height that that one did, but Dad would always remind Mom, Mary Agnes, you worry too much. You're making your own problems. Now, I don't know if this is just a typical men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of thing. I don't know. But Daddy would always say, you know what, if you can't do anything about it, there's no sense worrying about it. And so with that this morning, I bring you, this is kind of refried, this is a gradyism that I want to bring you because I think this is biblical. Take responsibility for what's under your control. That's all you can do. And trust God with the rest. Say it with me one more time. Take responsibility for what's under your control and trust God for the rest. I, I think it's so important and especially in this Christmas season where there's an increase in sadness, where sadness moves into discouragement and discouragement becomes depression. And God forbid the, uh, the suicide attempts go through the roof from Thanksgiving until February. This season produces that. The expectations of people, the, the problems that we all face financially, being able to meet the expectations that folks have of us, that our own families have of us, to deliver the goods... Santa's list, whatever it is that our children want. You know, I remember growing up in a family that I didn't get everything that I wanted. And, and sometimes I didn't get everything I needed every day of the year. And so Christmas was a special time. Mom would always make sure that we had a whole good round of new clothes, which we would just roll our eyes and go, oh, I don't want any clothes. 
How many know what I'm talking about? And oh, we would just count the days. We were counting the hours, just losing our minds to just tear into those presents. And then as soon as 20 minutes after we'd already opened the presents and it looked like a tornado had blown through, it's like, is this it? Really? Now, y'all don't look at me in that tone of voice because you know what I'm talking about. There's more anticipation for what's coming sometimes than actually what it delivers because I think our expectations are in the wrong place. And sometimes we suffer as parents trying to deliver things that we can't afford. Matter of fact, I read the other day that we spend our lives spending money we don't have, buying things we don't need, trying to impress people we don't like. So much sadness in this season. As a matter of fact, uh, from, from probably November till about March, there is a marked decrease in the amount of light that we get because of gray skies and snowy skies and rainy days and cloudy skies. And I, this is totally self-diagnosed. I've not been to a doctor who's told me this, but I believe that I'm affected by SAD, the Seasonal Affective Disorder. Yes, everybody say SAD. Seasonal Affective Disorder. That is that people who don't get enough light through the winter, are affected in their outlook and their emotional response because of the lack of light. I don't understand people who put on these big three-ply curtains and they make their houses a dungeon. It doesn't make sense to me. If that's you and you love that, praise God for you. I can't live that way. I am throw on the windows and throw up the sash and all of those things that you can do to let light in. i got to have light. I want it bright. One thing that I insisted when we were building this building is I want windows and all those offices so people can see outside because I was back in a dungeon for years in that old building at the mall watching the termites hold wings together to hold the place up. <laughs> and there were times I would have, I've got to get out of here. I can't stand, I've got to have some light. And I, I've, I've been all three weeks and I've read about six or seven books, actually finishing the seventh one and, and just preparing for this next year and some series that I'm going to be preaching, excited about some stuff that's ahead of us. 2020 is going to be remarkable. We've got some surprises that are coming. Awesome things are coming for our church in this next season. How many of you believe God's promises are true? Somebody say amen. It's going to be amazing. But I tell you what, after a couple of days of just digging in and, and, and I have to get up and go outside, I got to go walk around the neighborhood, I got to get in my car and go drive somewhere. Uh, you know, and, and I'm all about managing my money and staying out of debt, but I said, I got to go spend some money. I got to do something because I'm getting sad. Y'all following me? I, I got to go take myself out on a date by myself and I'm going to buy myself something to wear and I'm going to get myself something to eat. Are y'all hearing me? Come on, you need to know yourself. You need to recognize where you are when you're feeling like that. Three things this morning. Number one, I believe that we need to give up. In order to give up on sadness, we need to give up on the American dream. Now, I'm not throwing the whole thing out, the, out, out of, the, out of the, the baby with the bathwater, but there are aspects of the American dream that we have allowed in our culture to push us into such a hyper-materialistic place where all of our thinking is competition between us and Jack down the street who's got a 
a little bit more square footage in his house, and he's got another slot. He's got a three-car garage, and mine's only two, and he's got a storage house with a boat in it, and all I've got is a couple of Sea-Doo's. I've got a couple of jet skis. I'm just making this up. I don't have jet skis, so if you want to feel like you're led to bless the pastor with them, I'll take them. I'm just teasing. I'm just talking about how we compare ourselves how we make judgments between what this person has and how long it's taken them to build that business to that place. And it's taken me a little bit longer to build this church than it has my friends in some bigger cities. And the, the sadness that I have had to battle through in seasons in my own life going, God, do you love me? Have you forgotten about me over here in this God-forsaken, forgotten corner of Arkansas? Are you sure you intended for me to come here? How many of you know what I'm talking about? When you're in those places where the promise that you're believing, the goal that's in front of you, you've not reached yet, and you've been reaching for it, and you've been laboring for it, and you've been pressing for it. The American dream is not bad when you can sanctify it with the gospel of God, but the American dream written by this phrase came from Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States of America, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, number three. And he lifts some phrases from some documents already written, some that he was involved in writing himself. Because we are such a hyper-accusational people these days, by today's standards, we would call him a plagiarist. Because the phrase he's most famously known for was actually a John Locke, English philosopher's phrase, of life, liberty, and property. Life, liberty, and property became life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence, which was actually a covenantal document declaring the tyranny of King George III. And it was written undeniably talking about a creator that has given us these inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And... I believe that we have twisted this into a caricature. It has, you know what a caricature is? A caricature is a cartoon which emphasizes a feature uh, in order to give a message. For example, if you'll remember the caricature, the cartoons of Bill Clinton, he always had this massive chin, because he does have a pretty good sized chin. And President Obama always had these just big, big ears. And, and our current always has this massive dome of golden hair or, or orange tan or whatever, you know. And, and we're not throwing any stones at anybody. I'm just talking about a caricature. A caricature emphasizes, but it's distorted. It's, it's, it's pulled out of um, symmetry. It's pulled out of synchronicity. It's pulled out of the whole view is emphasizing something over everything else. And, and, and this is where I feel like we have begun to embrace the accoutrements of American success where we spend all of our time buying things we don't need, trying to impress people that we don't even like, getting stuff we, don't, we, we can't afford with money we don't have. And, and we've gotten this idea that this life that we've been given by God is all about pursuing I need to be happy. And I just want to tell you, I don't believe happiness is a pursuit because if you always chase it, it becomes the proverbial carrot in front of the donkey that's always just out there in front of you, but you never can actually get a hold of it. 
I've got to go to this place. I've got to marry this woman. I've got to land this job. I've got to get this position, get that move into this house. I've got to accomplish this particular goal. And once that one's done, you feel some excitement just momentarily, but then after that's been accomplished, there's a letdown because the anticipation almost, the work toward it was greater than almost the accomplishment of the goal. Because happiness can't be found in any of those things. I believe that happiness is a choice. I believe we decide to be happy. I believe, as Zig Ziglar said, that most people are as happy as they decide to be. Are you hearing me this morning? I, I believe that happiness is a choice that's not dependent upon all the stuff that's going on around us, that, that I can have a perspective in life, that I make a decision that I know that God loves me and that I know that I'm chosen by Him and I know whose I am. And, 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 and I'm going through stuff I don't have all the answers to, but I'm going to speak positively and declare the Word of the Lord because I know that He's got me and that I'm His and He's mine and He's made me the head and not the tail. I'm going over and not under. Hallelujah. And overcome the evil one because greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. 1 John 4.4 4. I'm thankful for life and for liberty, but happiness is not a pursuit, it's a choice. I started using the phrase after dawn died because I had to decide. I choose joy. My eyes would pop open in the morning and the daylight around 6 a.m. would be just starting to barely come into the room. And my eyes would pop open and I would say, Father, I choose joy. I choose joy. Sometimes I would wake up and immediately say it through tears. Sometimes there were tearful nights where I would cry myself to sleep and I would wake up at 2 a.m. and cry some more. would reach over to the bed. Dawn's not there. I would say, God, I choose joy. And I believe that we have to be people who are aware. We can't just go through life being numb and just numbing everything, medicating it with a shopping trip or with food. You, 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 you can look at me and see what my struggle is. I wear it. I just want to say this. I'm going to stop and just give God praise because when Dawn died, I weighed 340 pounds, and right now I'm dancing around 300. I'm 40 pounds down from what I was three years ago. I was in 50 pants, and folks, I'm in 42s. Hallelujah. This is an XL. I really should, but I put it on today because I thought, oh my gosh, I hadn't been able to wear this. Dawn bought this for me years ago. And I, I said, I'm going to try and see if I can wear that. And I said, oh my gosh, it's good enough. I'm not going to button it for them. <laughs> it is, everything I've had has been 2XL. This is, this is XL, glory to God. <laughs> I'm not quitting. It may take me a little while, but I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. It's too easy to medicate with some food. I could fall into a cheesecake right now. White chocolate raspberry. I'm going to start speaking in tongues. Hallelujah. My, my, my. Truffle. White chocolate truffle raspberry. Glory to God. But you have to develop an awareness at where your struggle is. Because I have to take responsibility for what's under my control and then trust God with everything else. 
There are aspects of giving up on the American dream. I'm not throwing the whole thing out with the bathwater, but number two this morning, I want to give up a circumstantial perspective. I want to give up on letting the way I see the world be dominated by every problem that encircles me. Circumstance. Stance is stand. Circum is circle. Everything that's standing around me, grasping for my time, going, make a decision, pay a bill, head this direction, go this way, go that way. You better deal with this. You better deal with that. Your blood pressure, your waist, your mental health, finishing this church building, the budget, my kids, are they going to make it? Drew's, Drew's okay. He's pulling through. Abby, I'm concerned. I'm just telling you, these are struggles I've faced over the last three years. She's in a wonderful place now. So hurt and so mad at God for a while. So angry with God. And she's praying. Last time she was home, she fasted for three days and prayed and sought the Lord. And I just got under such conviction. I said, I'm the pastor. I said this to myself. I didn't say it to her. I'm the pastor. I'm the spiritual leader. And my 24-year-old daughter is fasting three days seeking the Lord for direction in her career. And I got under, got under conviction and I started fasting. And that's how I've dropped this last 20 here pretty quickly. That's gotten things turned around for me. Because my own daughter challenged me. I saw something happening in her life. And she said, something that I prayed for. I said, God, please don't let her go. Help her, help her, help her to get rid of the grudge. Help her to lay down the hurt. And she said, you know, Dad, I, I love the Lord. You know, I've always loved the Lord my whole life. She said, I've been hurting, but I'm, I'm in a different place now. She said, you know, I think it's about time that I sing in church again. And I said, come on, baby. Give up on circumstantial perspective. All these things that are screaming at us, everything that we want to worry about, everything that is outside of our control that we worry what might possibly happen. There are two Psalms that appear in the early in the book of Psalms, 42 and 43, written by the sons of Korah, and they are a group of instrumentalists. They're a group of musicians. They're a group of songwriters. They're psalmists that that traveled across the Jordan when David left Jerusalem fleeing from the campaign or the coup that was set into play by his son Absalom who was attempting to take over the throne of Jerusalem. The sting of betrayal. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. I grieve when I trust someone deeply and I love them and I, 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 I give them and I make an investment in them and, and I pour into their lives and then I find out that they're not trustworthy. And I think, who do I think I am? Because the Savior of the world himself was betrayed. He poured his life into a guy by the name of Judas, so close to the name Judah. Judah means praise. Judas is the same thing. But Judas is a praise that will betray you. Judas will praise you to your face, but will stab you in the back. Will sell you for 30 pieces of silver. I felt the sting of betrayal and the hurt and the wound. And I'm wrestling through where David is. These, there are two psalms, but they actually are one big one that are presented as two. And the, the sons of Korah saw how David reacted when he crossed the Jordan, leaving Jerusalem. The priest wanted to bring the ark with him, and he said, no, 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 let, let's, let's keep the ark where it belongs. 
if it's the will of God, He will bring me back and restore. If it's not, then, then the will of the Lord be done. was David's words, and he's praying, and this is what they recorded, and they wrote us this psalm in response to what they saw King David do. It says, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, Where is this God of yours? Oh, I've been there. I've been there. I've been in that place. I've been in that place when I heard the growling, snarling demons of hell screaming at me going, Where, did, where was this God of yours when your wife needed him? I've heard those snarls. I've heard those words. David says, my heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. And David asks why. Listen, there is nothing wrong with asking why. You need to evaluate. You need some self-awareness. You need to know yourself. And David says, why am I discouraged? Why has the heart been sucked out of me? Why is my heart so sad? He says, I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again. How many of you know a sacrifice of praise is when you do it when you don't feel like it? He says, my Savior and my God, now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you, O Lord. He says in verse 9, I'm going to skip a little bit. Oh God, my rock, I cry. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts, their taunts break my bones. They scoff. Where is this God of yours? And like a chorus, he sings it again. Why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. This is the king of Israel. This is the greatest Old Testament example, a picture and a type of Christ. Even in the midst of all of his humanity, he shows us a picture of Jesus. In his brokenness, David was not without sin, but he knew how to get back to what he needed. It wasn't just thirst for water or hunger for food, but he was thirsting and hungering for God. He described everything that he faced as something that could only be answered by God himself. God is what we need. His presence is what we need. Psalm 43, the other half of this one big psalm, he says, declare the innocent. Declare me innocent, O God. Folk relying on him. Defend me against these ungodly people. Rescue me from these unjust liars. For you are God, my only safe haven. Why have you tossed me aside? I've been there and felt like that. So inadequate. Completely rejected. Completely dejected. God, I don't know what you're doing in this county. I don't know why I'm here. This thing is stuck. This was probably about 2003. And I was about to pull the hair out of my head. He says, for you are God, my only safe haven. Why must I wander around in grief? He says in verse 3, send out your light and your truth and let them guide me. Now let me just say this to you right now. He did that 2,000 years ago because his light, the name is Jesus. His truth's name is Jesus. He's already sent that out. 
you don't need some kind of supernatural experience of light and truth. You just need to get a fresh look at the one who is light and truth, and his name is Jesus. Come on. Two verses and I'm finished. Let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you live. There I will go to the altar of God, to, to God my God, to the source of all my joy. Everybody say joy. I choose joy. He says, I will praise you with my harp. Oh, God, my God. And the chorus comes one more time. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise you again, my Savior and my God. And this is what he was doing. This is what I want you to see. When you start to feel the encroaching sadness in this season, before you become discouraged, before it becomes depression, God, help us. Please, anybody in this room, if you're having dark thoughts, call me. Because suicide is a permanent answer to a temporary problem. Nothing is worth that. Nothing is worth that. Hear that this morning. For every step you take into the cave, you've got to turn around and take a step out. Out of the sadness, out of the darkness, out of the discouragement, out of the depression. Some of you, your first step in leaving and giving up sadness may be making an appointment with a doctor and getting on an antidepressant. We don't poo-poo that around here. God gives us all kinds of ways, natural medicine and spiritual prayer and mental health and therapy and talk and everything. I believe God deals with the whole person, spirit, soul, and body, and we need to be able to bring healing in all those ways. We, we were doing all those things when, when Dawn was battling what she was battling. And so this morning, I just want to say to you that we have to do what David did. We have to redirect our attention. We have to make a decision to say, why, why is my soul in the state it's in? Why am I in this place of sadness? I've got to throw the, the, the windows open. This is my own, this is how I medicate myself. I get up and go outside. I breathe some fresh air. I, I, I'll go get something to eat. Maybe I've been reading for eight hours and I'm not eating and I'm down. Okay, because I can do that. I can get absorbed into things. This, this whole redirect your attention thing, I've got a little illustration I want you to see. I want you to see these two guys riding on a bus. So much of our happiness depends on how we choose to look at the world. Both these guys are on the same bus, and one's looking at the mountainside. It's just, see this as an analogy. He's looking at the problem that he's facing and the darkness of that thing and the insurmountable inability to climb, get over it. It's right there in his face. The other guy's riding the same bus, but he's on the other side of the bus, and he's looking out at the beauty and the vista, the amazing scenery of God's creation. Folk, I just want you to know that the seat you're on in the bus is not permanent. You can get up and change your seat. You can move from the seat on the bus that you're sitting in. You can move to the other side. You can make a choice. You can quit pursuing happiness, and you can decide, I'm going to be happy. You can choose joy because Jesus is joy. You can give up on sadness. You can give up on discouragement. I've been discouraged. I can count the number of times in my life, on one hand, when I've really been bad, low. I've just come through the worst one I've ever experienced in my life, and that was grieving my wife. And I've come through to the other side of it. I'm in a different place now. I've got hope that's vibrant and alive in my heart. And I'm thankful for that. 
I can meet people in the grocery store and they can ask how you're doing and I can look them in the eye and mean it and I can say, you know what, I'm doing wonderfully. I have hope. There's a future. God's blessing is ahead of me and I'm expecting great things. And I can mean every word and it's not just plastic. It's not just contrived. Because I have hope. God's restored that hope. He's renewed that hope. And I'm thankful. You can get up and move in your seat you can redirect your attention. You can say, I will put my hope in God. I will remember you, Lord, even when you're sad, even when you're down. Are you getting anything out of this this morning? Point number three, and I'm finished. Give up on reactionary living. Stop living knee-jerk. Lay down the circumstantial perspective. Give up on this, this hyper-materialism of the American dream. Quit trying to be something you're not. Just be happy. Be who you are. Be who God's made you to be. Give up on the circumstantial perspective of letting everything around you determine how you see the world. Get up and move to another spot on the bus. And then quit living knee-jerk in a reactionary lifestyle where everything is a reaction to something that's happened, but you choose to respond to the Word of the Lord. The Bible says, and we're going to wrap this up with our text, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance. Everybody say endurance. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Verse 2 tells us how we do this. We do this by what? Keeping our eyes on Jesus. The King James says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. NLT says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates. He started it and he finishes it. He perfects, he completes it. He brings it to maturity. He, he initiates and perfects our faith. Look at this, because of the what? Say it. Jesus had something set in front of him that was not a temporary circumstantial perspective. It wasn't cursing and spitting guards. It wasn't accusing Pharisees. It wasn't Roman centurions with hammers and spikes. But it was a joy that was out in front of him. And the Bible says the joy that he chose that was awaiting him, that was in front of him, because of it, he did what? Everybody say it. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. I love that this morning. We said fear can go to hell and shame can go there too. You know what? When you live out of an eternal perspective and not a circumstantial perspective, God, I'm in the middle of this thing right now and it's dark, but I choose to prophesy your promise. I choose to say I know that God is good all the time. I know that you're light in the middle of this dark place that I'm in. I know that you're healing in the middle of the sickness and the disease that I'm carrying. You've carried it for me. And by faith, I take hold of your healing. Whatever circumstance you face, whatever you need this morning, prophesy the promise of God. Because Jesus endured everything that was put in front of him. The hostility of sinners because of a joy that it was out there in front of him. The joy, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Verse 3, think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't, when you think of it, when you meditate on this stuff, think about everything he endured, then you won't become weary and give up. 
So when we stop and go over what Jesus did for us, when I remember what he endured, it strengthens me to endure what I'm going through right now. It gives me hope. It gives me an injection, a heavenly steroid of joy that grabs my attention and says, God, I will remember you. I set my hope on you. Listen, Eugene Peterson, great man of God, Presbyterian pastor, academic writer, particularly around pastoral issues, pastoral theology, a number of years ago wrote the message, paraphrase, and it's still a favorite of mine. Listen to these same words through the message, and I'm going to close. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again. Item by item. That long litany of hostility that he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Do you hear what I just said? When you stop and meditate on that, it will inject you with divine adrenaline into your soul. So you won't get weary and give up. So this morning, that's my charge to you. Line up, because I, 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 I've got a needle with some hope in it this morning. I'm going to stick you in the arm before you head out the door today. Because the encouragement that God wants to bring to you is to face what is before you in this season and don't let all of this cultural nonsense around us of comparing ourselves and got to be like the Joneses or whoever else, charging up our debt and our cards, buying things with money we don't have for stuff we don't need, trying to impress people we don't even like. Forgive us, Father. Help us remember that that'll only give us a temporary excitement, but what we really need is you. We need you. We need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. We bow our hearts together in prayer right now. The greatest thing you can do in this moment